People just starting to join in. Welcome everybody. We're just waiting for the rest of our registrants to join in and we'll get started today. Ready. Good morning, Deborah. <laughs> Deborah's a, one of our regulars. <laughs> and I'm putting up my uh, chat ch chat panel here, and uh -huh. yeah, it's kind of fun to watch in. The in. <laughs> All righty. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Great Data Mining, Great Data Minds author series. Um, and our special guest today, I'm so excited to be visiting with him is Chris Laping, um, author of Peeper Before Things, which is what we're gonna um, chat about today. Um, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, as we go along, we really do encourage interaction. So if you have any observations that you would like to share with the other members, uh, audience attendees, um, and or if you have a question or observation for Chris or myself, please use the chat window and uh, we'll be monitoring that and we'll take pauses every once in a while to answer those great questions that you bring in. Um, also, please take a look at our events page. Uh, we have several other um, upcoming events that are gonna be pretty exciting including our fire hose session to the path to modern analytics. And then we got our, another path to modern analytics coming out, data ops, uh, standing up a data ops uh, discipline, lots of good stuff coming. So please check out our events page. So welcome, Chris, how are you? I am doing fine, sir. Thanks for having me, Mike. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm so honored that you, uh, were able to join us today. Um, a little background on Chris, and, and I, I have to um, go through this because it's it's so very, very impressive. Um, Chris has got about 25 years doing business transformation and IT transformation. Um, he, was, he served as a CIO across three different brands over the course of 14 years. And what's so significant is the the success of his team has been spotlighted so many times by the likes of Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company, CIO Magazine. Um, his teams have won awards in Computer World Premier uh, 100 IT. He's won, they have won three InfoWorld 100 awards. They've been in social, uh, InfoWeek Social Biz as tech leader. Um, amazing, amazing. And his, his team's success have been cited in three different books, The Engaged Leader, Mobile Mind Shift, and Implementing World-Class IT. And what strikes me about this, Chris, is it's not Chris's success, it's Chris's team's success. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, and, and by the way, I am so grateful to all those teams. And I'm grateful to be able to call 
so many of those people, my friends today. Mm-hmm. And I'll also say there were a few people along the way that I just loved working with. And I said, you know, one day I hope you call me so I can work for you and support you. And I've had the opportunity now to um, support some of those great folks. So oh, I awesome. consider myself very, very grateful for all of those experiences. Well, I'll tell you what, it, 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 in my career, and it's as you can tell by looking at me, my career is pretty long. I've, <laughs> I've, I've had the uh, um, um, pleasure of having one great leader boss, uh, servant boss um, and in my career, and what an experience that was. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and the performance of our team was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this book, People Before Things. Um, what was your motivation for writing this book, Chris? It was a passion project. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what to expect uh, from the process or the journey. Um, But when I decided to write the book, I was coming to the end of an eight-year journey with Red Robin. We had um, just enjoyed a massive uh, public turnaround or a turnaround of a public stock. And um, I, it was one of those things that I knew that the timing was right then for me to um, uh, step out mm. and write a book. It, and I knew that if I didn't take that opportunity, that it was probably gonna be another three to five years before I could really uh, do that in a way that honored all of the great experiences that I had had with Red Robin and didn't leave anybody high and dry, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But, you know, along the journey, it, it, I started almost coincidentally. And then I think over time, it became something that I was a lot more actually focused and purposeful about. And that was that when I started my CIO journey, I was working in these turnaround situations. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, you know, that the, perhaps people that are watching this today have had, have seen these job wrecks where a company describes that things are sort of um, bottom of the barrel they're not getting the value they think they should out of technology. Um, they want to change. They want to drive innovation. And they're looking for a leader to come in and, and help ignite that. And um, what happened eventually is I really realized, well, this is a kind of a known for for me. Um, mm-hmm. When my career is over, it'll be, it's likely I will look back on these turnaround situations. And when I was in these turnaround situations, I started to notice patterns around change and innovation and things that needed to exist to be successful and things that when they didn't exist would really um, create a lot of downstream impact and harm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, my motivation of writing the book was to share those patterns and help other people sort of fast path through some of the experiences I had and some of the mistakes I made. And that's why in the book, I'm just open about those mistakes Mm -hmm. so that uh, other people could adopt these um, patterns or ideas. In the book, I reference them as conditions that need to be in place for change. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the reason I did this was because I was tired of seeing hardworking, dedicated people getting out of bed, going to work every day, minding their own business, doing the job they were asked to do. And some big change or innovation hit them over the head Mm. and caused harm. 
and that um, these hardworking people were rattled uh, and that uh, ultimately there's a way to do that and I, uh, to push change and push innovation and uh, make it about the human experience. And in doing that, then to me, then that was going to um, help a lot of people down the road. Yep. So, so that was the motivation was all about change and innovation. And the stats are so staggering about how many organizations fail with change. Mm -hmm. And then you can, and you can correlate them. Like if 70% of all change fails, which is what Gallup says, but Gallup also says that almost 70% of the U S workforce is disengaged. You got to believe there's an inner relationship between that. Right. Um, and so anyway, that's how the yeah. journey started for me. That's how it started. So speaking of patterns, as, as I was devouring the book, and I did do it in record time, especially for me, because I'm such a slow reader, but I blazed <laughs> through your book. Um, I saw some patterns emerge. And of course, I'm an analytics guy, so I'm, I'm paid to find <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? Um, so tell me about the architecture, the structure of the book a little bit. Because I saw some rules of oh. in there. <laughs> well, I read a, a pretty dry white paper along the way in my career that talked about the brain categorizes things in groups of three and groups of seven. Mm. And so what you see in the book is I try to pattern the ideas and the concepts into groups of three, because that's something that, again, our brains will more naturally organize. Um, and by the way, those, those things all have inner relationships with each other. So if you can get just one of the three ideas, you can almost then force yourself to remember the other two. Mm -hmm. So part of this was, listen, books that are written about IT and for IT are generally written by academics or consultants that have never walked a mile in our shoes. Mm. And you get these big, thick books with all of this deep data and these long lists and none of it really mind maps. And so mm. I wanted a book that was fun, that uh, I made sure that there was humor in the book. I wanted a book that you could sit down and read end to end in one to two sittings. And the only thing I really wanted from the book was to invoke uh, reaction and mm -hmm. to help ignite people wanting to do something about what they were reading. And if I didn't organize things in threes and sevens, then they wouldn't really be able to know exactly what they were uh, mm -hmm. igniting or yeah. activating on. So what are the, what, give me the, uh, give the folks a feel for the, the three, three main parts of the book. Well, um, actually, if you, what I'll do is I'll just step back and I'll say yeah. the book basically explores that seven, there are seven things that can either accelerate change or block them. And okay. the, the one liner I use for this is these are the seven reasons people push back. Mm -hmm. And in IT, it feels like people are pushing back on us and we take it personally but these seven things would cause people to push back if the change was being driven by the CEO or IT. Mm -hmm. So those are seven conditions that I explore in the book. Now, what I do is I break the book up into three parts. Okay. The first part is just setting the stage on um, these seven conditions. 
Mm-hmm. And setting the stage that we have to be purposeful about what we're doing. I tell a story in the book about somebody who declared in a meeting I was in one day, failure is not an option. <laughs> like, like if you just sprinkle that magic pixie dust, everything's going to magically be great. Um, and it's not. And it turns out failure is an option. So in the first part of the book, I just want to set up what failure can look like and how it hurts people and how it can be humiliating and embarrassing and how it can really create devastating uh, downward declines of businesses. Mm-hmm. Then I jump into the seven conditions. And part two of the book is looking at the three conditions that I believe map to executive leadership. Uh These are three things that if executives don't do it, then there's no way a project team is going to succeed. And then the third part of the book is looking at the four other conditions And these are more project leaders and grassroots influencers working together to push change. Mm -hmm. My belief is that change has to happen all through an organization. I actually believe where most of the action happens is with grassroots influencers. So what I'm doing with the book is I'm saying, in total, here's the part that an executive really needs to step up and do, which in my experience, they don't. And here are the four conditions that the grassroots influencers and project leaders have to steward. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell so that's, me, tell, that, that's the sequence. Yeah, yeah. so let's, let's dig into the, the, the leadership-focused conditions a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of help me help the leaders take note here? Yeah, I mean, if you're an executive leader, the three things I think that are most critical that I talk about in the book, the first thing is making sure the whole organization is aligned to why we're doing something. Mm -hmm. By the nature of business and business school, we talk about the what's a lot. Yeah, we do. Vision and strategy is a what statement. When we express that we're going to do some kind of technology initiative, we express it in terms of here's what we're going to roll out. Mm-hmm. executive leaders need to create powerful filters around the whys. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why now? And an executive leader can't get up and say, we're doing this because we want to increase profitability. That's a no duh. When people that's- get out of bed every day, they understand that that's what the business is focused on. So if you tell them a no duh, it goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah. So what I'm asking for, for executives to be thoughtful about some kind of rally cry that's focused on the why. Let me give so you that, a good example. Um, mm-hmm. One of the best rally cries I've ever heard on the why front is um, it, was a, it was a timekeeping system. And the rally mm-hmm. cry was, we want to pay our team members correctly. <laughs> like to me, now suddenly people are motivated and understand what's at stake when they're implementing a new system. The second thing that executives need to do is they need to carry that why through to the what and the how. And that's principally around the conditions of design. Mm -hmm. Complexity is the enemy of change. So we roll out systems that are designed to tackle 10, 15, 20 different whys. We end up with these Swiss army knife systems that nobody likes to use. So instead, the executive's role is to say, what does it take to achieve the why? 
and nothing more. Um, and to be disciplined about this, but this is not what executives do. Usually executives get uninvolved when systems are being selected, mm. when partners are being selected, and the teams are trying to placate a lot of stakeholders who have a lot of different needs. So all of these requirements get piled on and then they go out and buy a system that's overly complicated and no one likes to use it. And then the executives are like, why are we not getting the bang for a buck? Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that executives need to do, the third condition is around capacity. That mm -hmm. in my experience, by the way, of all seven conditions, this is the one that has the most uh, universal theme across companies mm. that um, if, if it's an important change, and by the way, I've heard so many CEOs go, this is the most important thing we've ever done in the history of the universe. <laughs> and then you ask that executive, have you cleared the decks so your people can focus on that priority? Have you deprioritized things that, uh, are, that can wait for right now that aren't as important right now? Can you augment your staff with additional hours? What can you do to make sure the decks are cleared and that people have the time of day to actually adopt this change? Mm -hmm. So if you look at those three things, alignment is answering the why, mm -hmm. the design is answering what we're going to do and how we're going to get it done. And then the capacity is all about when, when is the right time to land this plane, so to speak, of change in mm -hmm. the organization? You know, in the, in, in the lean agile world, when I look at some of the principles around that, that, what's resonating here is that why the alignment is driving to a purpose, a purpose that I can get behind mm. and believe in, right? Um, uh, and I think that's probably what is so critical for, for leaders to make sure that they're hearing the need of all the mm. stakeholders, right? To your point yes. earlier, it's not just about profitability. When I hear profitability, it's like, okay, great. The executives are going to make more money. Yeah. 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 Profitability is not a goal. Yeah. Profitability is an outcome or a it's measure. An mm -hmm. And if you've achieved your goal, then you're going to achieve this. And I know I've worked with sales organizations on change and they don't like this part. They don't like the, no, I want to be able to say that increasing sales is the goal. It's like, no, that's not the goal. How are you going to achieve increasing sales? When we get on the same page about that, sales are naturally going to grow from that. Um, but the data is very clear, Mike, mm -hmm. that people are not profit-driven, that we are largely purpose-driven animals. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, I think it's important to connect people to that purpose. Yep. And by the way, when you go out and you trumpet the why, that doesn't cost you anything. That doesn't cost you any amount of money to actually properly give people the context on why you're doing something. Mm -hmm. And if you think about toddlers and the very first words that come out of their mouth as little kids, they ask, why, why daddy, why, why do I have to do this? Cause so I said natural. So. <laughs> That's right. It's natural. So it, you know, to me, it's like one or two sentences appended to a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, what's harder is actually constructing the why in a way that creates clarity. You know, I think about the, the, I think the Blaise Pascal quote, I'll probably screw this up, but it's something like, I'm sorry for the long letter. If I had more time, it would have been shorter. <laughs> um, and that's really the only thing you have to invest when it comes to this why is just a little more time on 
what's a clarifying statement? Uh huh. So in the design stage, Chris, um, I was picking up a little hint of customer centricity, like trying to get to, to the needs mm -hmm. of the end stakeholder. Um, are there, uh, you know, of course I have to ask this question. Are there like three elements of a good design? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, there has to be some relationship to this why statement. Um, and that that is your filter. Whenever you're making decisions about features and functions and requirements, there, there has to be a direct mapping to okay. that why statement. Uh -huh. And um, ultimately, um, if somebody's asking for something to be in the system that doesn't map to the why, then we in IT, we can't be subservient to that. We can't just say, and this is the problem when we call our stakeholders the business and we act like we're not the business, we act like we don't get a voice. But if someone is asking you for something that doesn't map to the why, well, then what I would say to you is that's not a requirement. That's, a, that's absolutely a preference. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's, that's an important element to it. If you think about what people uh, like, mobile apps, as an example, have really taken off. And it's because they're single purpose devices. If you single purpose technology, if you think about YouTube, you're just watching videos on YouTube, but it doesn't do anything else other than that. Um, if you get your calendar out, you're just working on your calendar. People like single purpose devices. That's what we have in our house. We have a toaster and a toast bread. And if we wanna make coffee, we don't make it in the toaster. We go over to the coffee maker. <laughs> So there's this direct sort of correlation and relationship uh, between the why statement that's really important. Yeah. And then I would say, in my mind, good design is also setting the stage for the future. All it's, right. it's saying, hey, these things that we're asking for can add value, but not now. Right now, we're, singing, we're serving a single why, and the next version that we roll out will serve a new why and this backlog starts to build mm -hmm. and we have to get out and share that backlog with people. Because if there's one thing I've gotten punched in the throat for in my career, it's this discipline around a backlog and saying, no, we're not going to release this now. Mm -hmm. If I just give you the, what's at stake from the business though, most business cases I've ever looked at for an IT system, the money is in lines one and two. Mm -hmm. But we just feel like we need to laundry list things out. So we put 10 different benefits. And one and two have 90% of the benefits and items three to 10 are the other 10%. And we hold up getting the 90% benefits because it's number seven on our list, mm. which is like 1% of the benefits is really hard and complicated to roll out. Mm -hmm. So over time, what I've done is I've drawn the line. I've mapped those top one or two line items to the mm -hmm. why statement. And I say, that's my filter. Nothing okay. more is going into the system right now, but here's the backlog for the future. And that backlog, I, I, um, are you suggesting people be deliberate on loading the backlog? So is there kind of an incubation discipline that yeah, I think so. On. And I think it ties to another condition we talk about later, which is stakeholder engagement, which is all about how do you listen to your stakeholders and get feedback, but most importantly, how do you take demonstrable action? Mm 
Mm-hmm. So what I like to do is after I have release one of something go out, I give it about 30 days to burn in. And then I go back to those stakeholders and I say, Hey, after using the system for 30 days, what's the number one thing you would improve. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I compare that one thing to some of the other preferences I heard about that I was keeping on my backlog. There mm-hmm. generally is a relationship there. Mm-hmm. there ge- someone asks for something. They say, well, the one thing that would improve this is this. And when they say what this is, it maps to the thing that they're burning mad that you didn't release in version one. Mm-hmm. So now when you get to version two, imagine the power. If your why statement to your audience is, hey, after going live for 30 days, we asked all of you, what's the number one thing you would improve in the system? Mm -hmm. You said X, and therefore we're rolling out X in this release. Yep, there you go. You're getting the voice of the customer as a a deliberate feedback loop. Totally. Yeah, I'm also picking up on minimal viable product kind of concept. You know, guys, let's, let's get value and let's get as quickly as possible. Yeah, I've tweaked it a little bit because I think Mm -hmm. our role in IT, and I don't talk about this in the book, but our role in IT is stable, secure, useful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes usefulness gets pushed aside for stability and security. Mm -hmm. So I have changed the language a little bit. Instead of minimal viable product, it's minimal lovable product. Lovable. <laughs> Lovable. So what is, what is the bare minimum that makes this actually useful? Because sometimes if you go live with an MVP, you actually break the cycle of momentum you were building because people log in and they look at it and they go, oh, that's it? Yeah, I'm not interested in this. And they check out on the project and you're in the early innings of the project. You want mm-hmm. people totally engaged. So I think if you set the bar a little bit higher to an MLP, the minimal lovable product, now what you're doing is you're finding just enough usefulness mm-hmm. that you're wetting their appetite. And now they really want to roll up their sleeves and get engaged with the future growth of that system. That's brilliant. I'm, can I coin that? That totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I love totally. it. Totally. I yeah. am working on the second book, but I think if you, you just start using it now and normalize it, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll put a little down there, you know, Chris Slippy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we got three key things that leaders must focus on if, if they're going to enable transformation for their organization. Yeah. Let's talk about the next page. Let's talk about the, 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 the people that are instrumental in bringing about the transformation. What are some of those, those, what are those four conditions? Now let's talk through those. Well, you know, in these four conditions, you usually have some kind of project leader. Uh, This tends to be a project manager. Sometimes it's a director of a specific function. That person needs to marry up with the grassroots influencers, the people who are most interested in what it is you're doing. We want Are to these leverage the change agents, kind of. Sorry, yeah, I, I I would say you could use them as change agents, but uh-huh. okay. The um, I I would just think of them as influencers, right? Uh-huh. That when you're sitting in a town hall meeting and we're all sitting around, and the CEO says something that we think is a little outlandish, we look over to the influencer to see huh. how how she's reacting to it. What's and the if body she language? looks calm, if she looks calm, then we're calm. 
Um, we can use their voice verbally and non-verbally throughout the, throughout the journey. So if we go through these four conditions, I'm going to kind of ping pong between uh, the project leaders and these grassroots influencers. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and again, when I think about grassroots influencers, there's always interested insiders who love working with you, who love the idea of this initiative and who are willing to be enablement people. They're willing to raise their hand and do whatever it takes to succeed. Mm-hmm. So condition number one, this is the one that is going to sound really, really no duh, Mm -hmm. but this is the one that I'm actually going to mean the opposite of what I say. So this first condition is around communication Mm. and almost every IT team I've ever been around knows enough to build a communication plan. However, the punchline is this is not a communication plan. In fact, this is the opposite. We think that people want transparency. I don't think people want transparency. The data shows that what people want is clarity. They don't want you to vomit a bunch of information on them (laughs) and they have to make sense of it. They want you to be very clear about what's happening and how it's going to affect them and what you need from them. Mm -hmm. And they want to find their story in your story. Mm -hmm. So this condition around communication is about using less words versus more words. Mm -hmm. It's about no adjectives and adverbs. Hmm. If you sit there and you say, well, this is going to be the best thing that's ever happened in the history of business. Now you've become a politician. Mm -hmm. People don't want that. They want four questions answered, which is why, what, how, and when, which we've covered in those first three conditions. Now, the reason why memos are so hard to write and the reason why communication is usually so poor in organizations is because the executive team hasn't properly done those first three steps that Mm. makes answering why, what, how, and when easy. Mm -hmm. So instead, we end up with this 50-page memo that reads like Dr. Seuss, and we don't know what it means. It's got a bunch of legal language and compliance language and a bunch of insider IT language that no one's understanding, none of that. (laughs) We just wanna answer those four questions I say that can usually be done in a paragraph. And once you answer those questions in a paragraph, you as the project leader need to get out of the way and let a grassroots influencer communicate that message for you. It will have so much more credibility if one of the stakeholders who stands to gain something from this system is out there trying to win the hearts of her peers. Awesome. Now, the the second thing, the second condition is around learning. This is not training. This is learning. Learning is experiential. Training is a 40-page Word document with a bunch of screenshots. People need to be able to Practice in a safe environment where failure is okay and they can share those experiences with their peers. Learning is when someone else who does their job is right there with them and they're comparing shared experiences. Mm -hmm. So I like to think about learning as coaching, content, community, and connection. You need all four of those things in play for for an adult to learn. Mm -hmm. And remember that when they're learning, they're trying to answer the question, how is my job going to change? Yeah, That's right. what they really want to know. 
Mm-hmm. And so a learning, uh, can, a learning environment should be trying to answer that question for them. Here's directly how your job's going to change. Mm-hmm. Oh. Did you, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to just keep giving no, you no, a no, no, yeah, I was just going to offer up it, 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 that, that whole collaborative model. Again, it's, it's bringing this groundswell. Your voice is important. Yes. So important that you're going to be in, instrumental in the actual activation of this change. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, right down the road from where we live, there's this place called the vault. And they, this is where people store all their fancy old muscle cars. Uh-huh. And I've driven by there from time to time, like on a Saturday and everyone goes to the vault and they pull their cars out and they flip up the hoods and they start having these conversations. That is what learning is about. It's mm-hmm. about these very interactive experiences where people are having conversations. Sometimes in IT, we just try to send the 40-page Word document with screenshots. And we say, click here, click here, click here. People don't want to just learn where they click. They want to learn why they need to click and what happens when they click and why this is important to their job and what's going to change about their job. Mm-hmm. Now, the third condition that these project leaders and grassroots influencers do is they create stakeholder engagement. And I Mm -hmm. recognize that's a fancy phrase. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who read that chapter, because that, um, that chapter is called Dumbo comes to mind, invoking this thing around. (laughs) We got to have really big ears where we're listening. Um, People say, why don't you call it listening? Well, because it's, it's listening plus taking demonstrable action on the feedback. Mm-hmm. So um, if you think about surveys and why we don't like surveys, we don't like surveys, especially employee engagement surveys, because they go out, takes three months for anything to come back. Then the executives get up and they give us the punchline. They say, here's what we're going to do about this. And we're all sitting there like, really? That's what you came up with after three months? So this thing around stakeholder engagement is how do you do listening at scale? Mm-hmm. How do you get, uh, if you have thousands of employees, how do you get thousands of employees to give you feedback and in 72 hours, collate the response and come back and say, here's the action we're going to take based on what mm-hmm. you said. Mm-hmm. I think listening at scale is important after we release new software, yep. asking people, what's the number one thing you would improve? I think it's important during the testing cycle. What's the number one thing that you would fix before we go live with this? I think it's important for budgeting. Hey, we're putting our budget together for next year. What's the one thing you hope is included in the budget? Mm -hmm. Make your audience prioritize their answer. Don't let them just vomit stuff back to you. Ask Mm -hmm. them, what's the one thing? And then show them some action. And by the way, if you're not going to take action, that's okay. Tell them why you're not going to take action. Right. People mm-hmm. are rational and logical. Get the information you have in front of them so they reach the same conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the and, last, and they understand the rationale. Yeah, right. And then the last element is support. Uh-huh. And, and, and this one sounds like a no-duh too. But what happens often is we roll out a change we immediately kick it over to production support of the help desk. Something doesn't work the way we say it'll work. Mm-hmm. Stakeholders call the help desk. And you know what the help desk says? Huh. I didn't even know about this change either. I haven't <laughs> even seen this system. 
That does not imbue confidence. Right. The other thing that I talk about in the book related to support is when you're building your implementation plan, your business case to implement, mm-hmm. you have to put the long-term costs in there to continue enhancing and supporting the system. Oftentimes, we only think about the one-time implementation and we account for all those costs and then we have no support plan for making it better. And so end users, stakeholders, use systems that for seven years haven't been improved other than security patching. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is build a plan for long-term support. And I tell Mm -hmm. a story in the book about being a CIO and waking up one day and recognizing I had put 55 new systems into production and had not increased my headcount on the help desk, not even one person. That is unbelievably stupid for me to have done that. (laughs) And I think about how people think that IT should have a lifetime warranty. I should turn it on. I should pay for it this one time and it should magically get enhanced over time. When does that happen in life? When have you bought a toothbrush that lasted for life? When have you bought a pair of jeans that last for life? When have you purchased a house that you didn't ever have to put maintenance into? Right. And so, yes, when you put your business case together and you put those long-term costs in there, yes, it's going to erode your business case. It's not going to look as sexy. But that's the truth. That's the Mm -hmm. truth of what's going to happen. And if you don't do that kind of laying the foundation of truth with executives now, then IT is going to be in heroic mode for the next 10 years trying to support the 55 systems that went into production. So are you telling me that transformation is not an event? That it's a journey? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, sir. No kidding. Um, And how often we don't do exactly what you just said, you know, including... That would, you know, get in that continuous feedback, which helps us formulate the next set of whys that we might have to knock down. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right on, Mike. I mean, um, I think about the transformation that's most sustainable is this mindset that we want to get 1% better every day. Mm. And, you know, when an organization or an individual commits themselves to getting 1% better every day, just a 1%. At the end of a year, doing that every day with compounding benefits, you're going to be 38 times better than when you started. Mm -hmm. And so when organizations want this to be a big bang event, um, they want this to be the revolution versus the evolution. Mm -hmm. What I would say is it's possible to start it with a big bang but you've got to make sure that all these seven conditions are in play in a very healthy way Mm -hmm. or you are absolutely going to mow people over. And then these hardworking people that I referenced earlier downstream Mm -hmm. are going to hate their jobs. They're going to hate where the company is, the direction of the company turnover is going to start to rise and people are not going to give any discretionary effort. They're not going to go over and above the expectation on anything um, if we uh, go in there and we don't grease the skids on change before it happens. Right, right. Well, and tying it all the way back to that underlying human motivation, right? You know, mm-hmm. you know we've got a couple of comments coming in from folks saying, you know, with them, you know, the what's in it for me it, yeah. message came across. Um, 
in the 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 learning part, I, I'm picking up on that there's a need for investment in learning for the organization. Not only learn you know, learning how to change, learning the effective ways to promote transformation and change, but even other kinds of skills, continuous education, continuous learning. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, if we look at who are the two categories of people that are most heralded in society, the first category of people are our military heroes and all of the sacrifices they make. The second category are elite athletes. Those two mm. buckets of people get a lot of attention and adoration. If you look at military heroes and elite athletes, they are committed to training and learning every single day. My father was a, a, mm -hmm. a Navy commander and um, I would, he has explained over the years that they had missions that they didn't know if they were a training mission or not. Um, and so you had to activate in the moment as if this was really going on. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of mentality. If you go up to an elite athlete and you ask him or her, hey, are you interested in getting 1% better at what you do? Any elite athlete in the world will sign up for that mm -hmm. because they recognize that that 1% improvement might actually be the difference between silver and gold. Mm -hmm. And so what I ask IT leaders is, or IT professionals, mm -hmm. and why wouldn't you view your own personal growth and development that way? Why wouldn't you seek out every day the opportunity to get 1% better? And I would ask any CEO why he or she is not focused on making their organization 1% better every day. That comes from learning and learning experiences. Mm -hmm. And Mike, I can totally see this. Um, when I'm working with clients, the difference, and I'm sure you've seen this too, the difference between organizations that are committed to lifelong learning and intellectual curiosity and asking really important questions about what's happening in the business, what's happening in the market, what's mm -hmm. happening with feet on the street and the way people feel in the organization. Those organizations that are focused on that, you can feel a mass, you just feel the energy. You do. When you walk into and work with those teams, there, mm -hmm. there's a team that um, uh, I uh, have connected with in the last couple of weeks where they've let me sit in. Uh, it was, it's a leadership team meeting. Um, and I'm just uh, observing how well do they work together? Oh my goodness. Uh-huh the energy of what winning feels like and an organization that's committed to getting 1% better every day. I mean, it, if I were on that team, I would jump out of bed every day, put my two feet on the ground. I'd be so excited about working in that environment. Yeah. Fired up. Yep. Well, they had it once <laughs> inside of an organization. Um, I've, I've seen, I've seen a lot of, uh, pockets within my uh, clients' organizations, though, where mm -hmm. they've got these teams that are just like, oh my gosh, these guys are sharp and they're on and they're connected. And they're, it's, it's almost like one uh, being, <laughs> you know, one collective yes. being. Yeah. Yes. And then I love working with individuals who are just really intentional 
and purposeful mm-hmm. about what they're doing. I mean, the, the concern around uh, data science and IT and anything that requires innovation, the concern is that we do a bunch of stuff and we throw it against the wall. And what we hope is that it leads to career progression and career growth. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I believe it doesn't work like that at all. I believe it's the opposite. It's, hey, what are you wanting to achieve? And with precision, what does it take to achieve that specific outcome? And it requires an amazing consistency. Right. And being able, you know, James Clear has a book, Atomic Habits, that I love. And he talks about in the book that he was talking to uh, an Olympic trainer of weightlifters. And he asked the trainer, what separates these, you know, Olympic weightlifters from everyone else? And he, the, the response was that those weightlifters push through the boredom of training. They are mm-hmm. amazingly consistent and show up through the boredom. And James Clear says, He's like, that was such a startling revelation because the trainer didn't say that that person had some special gift that they were born with. Mm -hmm. The trainer didn't say that person um, has some well of willpower that the rest of us don't have. What that trainer said was that we can consistently show up and invest in our own growth and development, even when it's boring. Right. Keeping the eye on the prize. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the, to the, uh, the lifetime warranty kind of thing, the support you know, and your commentary, if, if we could. Um, you mentioned the concept of credibility being a function of a demonstrated track record and empathy. Can you mm. expand on that a little bit? I mean, if, if what's the detriment there if I don't have that kind of mindset? Well, I mean, I think when I think about credibility and track and yeah, the, the formula I lay out is credibility equals track record plus empathy. Uh-huh. If you, if you have just empathy, you just have an endless well of empathy, um, but you're not getting anything done, then you're largely seen as a pawn in the organization. And so okay. people don't see you as a leader or an influencer. Mm-hmm. They like you, but they don't see you as terribly effective. I always say that if when I ask someone about you, the first thing they say is, well, you know, that guy, Sean's a really nice guy. Mm. That's the kiss of death. (laughs) Usually people say, hey, Sean is really competent and he's such a nice guy. He's so kind. Mm -hmm. So this empathy thing um, uh, by itself is not enough to build credibility. Uh, Yet it is important. Yet it is important. Then the flip side of this is if it's all about track record and getting things done and you don't have an ounce of empathy or emotional intelligence and you aren't treating people well, mm-hmm. now you're a bulldozer. People mm-hmm. see you as a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. And I just saw like the other day, uh, like a two and a half minute clip from Simon Sinek that was talking about Navy SEALs and how they go out and select Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. And he created this graph around trust and performance. And I think this lines up to the empathy and track record. And basically um, the way the Navy SEALs think about it is that performance means 
I can trust my peer with my life. Mm. And, and, and that's what performance is. And trust is I can trust my peer with my wife. And that's just the way they lay it out, life and wife. And um, <laughs> what, what he points out, what Simon Sinek points out in this video is if you walk in a room and you say, who's the asshole? Everyone in the room points to someone who is off the charts on performance, right? <laughs> and has zero trust. So it's really those two things have to come together mm -hmm. uh, beautifully um, in, in terms of the work we do. And we have to be deliberate in our consciousness around both those dimensions. Right? Well, and it's, mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, listen, if, if you take a Myers-Briggs personality assessment, there are 16 different personalities. Mm -hmm. There are a few of those personality assessments where it is just not ingrained in you mm -hmm. to be good with people. And, and by the way, at, at, at this age, 98% of your personality is baked. So you can try to overcome that all the time. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to show a lot of uh, a return on that. However, emotional intelligence, you can do something about. Mm -hmm. And with emotional intelligence, it's self-awareness. It's, okay, I know I have this weakness and I know this shows up. So what tool am I going to use to offset that? Mm -hmm. And then that tool becomes self-management and how I actually manage those emotions. But if we think we're going to do that toolless without a tool, we're wow. crazy. And this is why, again, learning and continuous development on your skills mm -hmm. is so important. Now, if I give you yeah. an example, my 16 personality profile is ENFP, which is basically the equivalent of squirrel. And <laughs> um, in my personality profile, there are benefits like I'm creative and I'm curious and, and that I um, can articulate my ideas. The weakness is I'm impulsive. Mm -hmm. So if I use emotional intelligence, what I recognize is I'm impulsive. That's inherent to who I am. That's the bad that comes with the good stuff. Mm -hmm. What tool am I going to use to control the impulsiveness? And so I have the 24-hour rule. That's the tool I use. I institute a 24-hour rule on any key decision I need to make. Because, um, Mike, I have literally walked into a home to look at it, to decide if I was going to buy it and have made an offer on that home before I've left the house. Right. So I have to say, ooh, 24-hour rule. Yep. So this is the kind of stuff that we have to do in the organizations we serve so that we can uh, be self-aware and self-manage ourselves through those situations mm -hmm. so that we can build trust with people and that we can come across with a little bit of empathy in our blood. So Chris, I definitely highly encourage people to read your book. It is so enlightening. Um, that's a call to action. Do you have another call to action that you want to put out for the folks here? Well, I would just say if any of this resonates for you, if you're interested in, in clicking down, my new project is uh, around uh, mastermind courses. And um, these mastermind courses allow us to jump in and work on these things in detail. Mm -hmm. Now, as a former CIO, the thing that was always tough when I was focused on my own career development 
It was tough for me to get out of the office for a week or two at a time. And it was tough because sometimes the price tag was so high that I had to go get somebody's approval for it. So mm -hmm. these mastermind courses are designed to do them 15 minutes a day. And it's facilitated through Slack and through Zoom. It's daily interaction with me. It's a four-week course. So we do a daily challenge every day for five days a week. But then we have one our Zoom every week to talk through these concepts. And of course, as people are interacting with each other nice. in the Slack group, they're, uh, I, I'm responding, but they're responding. So when you go back to the learning condition I talked about earlier, coaching, content, community, and connection, those are the elements that are in the mastermind course. And is it targeted just for leaders or should we get those, uh, those grassroots influencers and project managers in there as well? That's a great question. I think this content is perfect for grassroots influencers. And I also think it's perfect for leaders because our task, our job at hand is really the same thing. Whether you're a leader or you're a grassroots influencer, we're all trying to influence and build buy-in. And so that's what we really click down on. Uh -huh. and, my, and my thought process, and this is just like the process with the book, was I was tired of reading books from people who hadn't walked a mile in my shoes. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing with learning. I like to learn with someone who's walked a mile in my shoes and will help me in my journey really apply and learn these concepts. And so that's what we do with the mastermind course. And that mastermind course is called uh, leveling up your IT skills and in, your IT leadership and influence skills. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, folks on the uh, call, uh, if you go out to our uh, continuous education um, page, you'll see uh, a link to that write-up with Chris. And uh, as Julie put in the chat line, we'll, we'll follow up with a link to everybody, to, to everybody showing you where the course is and how to get signed up for it. Chris Laping, amazing. Every time I have my chat with you, it's just an amazing journey. I always feel like, Mike, I just ramble and ramble and ramble. So I'm sorry <laughs> if I had this like stream of consciousness just no, flowing out perfect. of me, but it, clearly mm -hmm. I love this stuff. You're an amazing man. You've already influenced oh, my thank life. You. And I've only known you a short period of time. Uh, thank, thank you, you so you. much, sir. And thank you, everybody. Um, oh, wait, we got a question. Uh, how about a little guitar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll come across very good on the microphone. I mean, that... Uh, uh, should I bring out my bass? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, actually I'm actually shocked it was partly in tune. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, I was, I was going to pick mine up, and I thought, uh, it's going to not sound good. <laughs> Thank you, sir. You have a great day. Thanks um, for having me, and everybody make it a great day. Yeah, you take care now. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you.